Hello, listeners. I'm back. Welcome to another episode of the Growing Pains podcast on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlanta, Canada. I'm Matt George. And I'm David Campbell. You can't see us, listeners, although that is a goal of ours in the future to come at you visually, but I'm sitting in my late grandfather's study in a small town in Newfoundland called Clarenville, Dave. That's where I'm recording this morning. That's impressive. Obviously, they have broadband in Clarenville. <laughs> Actually, I, I was on a, a bit of a road trip last time I was here, and there was a sign at a small diner that said, Free Weefy. And the Weefee was spelled W-E-E-F-E-E. And I thought it's only one place they'd have a sign like that. That's Newfoundland. Uh, I love The Rock. I've done a lot of work over there in recent years and uh, lots of great people. It's a really uh, a great province and hopefully uh, with a strong future as well. And as I understand it, they also have a transition in government afoot. Yes, that's right. So we've had we've got New Brunswick, we've got Newfoundland and Labrador. So and we've got the Nova Scotia's premier step down. So lots of uh, lots of political turmoil in Atlantic Canada these days. I wonder if I know this this show the bent is economic development and not necessarily politics, but obviously there are throughways. I wonder if this is an appropriate time for transition. I don't know the answer to this, but it seems like we all need to be focused on one thing, and that's the health, um, health cum economic crisis that is COVID nineteen. Yeah, it certainly is. I think risky for politicians if the public feels that you know it was not a good time to go to the polls, or if they're nervous about going to the polls or voting uh, in an election or whatever. I mean, we haven't even heard whether we're going to be uh, voting online or whether it's going to be physical um, mm -hmm. uh, voting here in New Brunswick. So I think it is a risky time for politicians. Uh, but on the other hand, I think, you know, the, they have lots of people reading the tea leaves, uh, not only in New Brunswick, but in the other provinces, and they must feel it's, it's the right time to do it. So we'll see how it goes. There's obviously serious economic development implications. Politics mm -hmm. plays a, a, a very important role in the economic development of the region, whether it's attracting population or fostering growth in key, in key industries and things like that. So obviously there's a, there's, there's a great intersection between politics and economic development. So mm -hmm. we'll be watching it closely on this podcast and we'll be having guests on in the next uh, few weeks to talk about politics and economic development. Yeah, that's right. And, and, um, one thing I noticed last evening when I get to wherever I'm going, I like to watch a bit of the local news just to get the temperature and the pulse of wherever I am. And, and the first thing that I believe it is the opposition leader had said about the transition in government was there still needs to be a huge renewed focus on the health of the offshore industry. And you and I had recently spoken to the director of Noya in the province of Newfoundland talking about the offshore industry and what it means to Newfoundland. Yeah, there's a lot of people uh, on the rock that don't understand why we can't focus more on that, and they don't see the the um, concerns, right? I mean, in, in their mind, we're going to, the world is going to need oil and gas for the next 30, 40, 50 years, depending on who you 
uh, you know, depending on the forecasts and mm -hmm. why shouldn't Newfoundland offshore oil play a role there. Uh, but of course, there's lots of controversy, lots of folks across the country that would like to see uh, oil and gas development curtailed, not only in Newfoundland, but in the rest of the country. So it's an ongoing debate, but it's a big one for Newfoundland and Labrador because obviously it's the largest industry, the largest export sector. It brings billions of dollars in economic activity to the province, and there's no clear alternative if that industry goes down. And you and I have talked in the past about the cod moratorium and how that mm -hmm. uh, sort of hurt communities and really uh, 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 hurt the province, particularly rural and outports. Uh, but, you know, if the, if the oil and gas industry goes down, it's going to have even larger impacts than the cod moratorium. So uh, mm -hmm. hopefully we can continue to see that industry thrive and provide oil for the world's demand uh, until there's no longer a demand, right? And then when the demand goes away, uh, Newfoundland will have to adjust just like every other oil producing jurisdiction. Yeah, that last statement is probably the most accurate, wouldn't you think? We talked with the director of Noya about if we flip a switch, and I think this is pretty well understood, if we flip a switch, there's going to be devastating consequences for energy producers who aren't ready to to fill the void of whatever comes after oil and gas. And so the transition will come, rightfully so, but while there is demand, um, Newfoundland needs to be able to reap the rewards of that because it's so critical to the infrastructure of the province. Yeah, we're not very good anymore at 30, 40, 50 year plans. When I was in university, I studied uh, companies, particularly the energy sector, that had 50-year business plans, right? And then in the 90s, we went, things went crazy, and we went down to five-year business plans, and then one-year business plans. And then you had people like Tom Peters talking about, you know, uh, uh, updating your business plan every week. So we really lost that long-term perspective, and I think we have to have a long-term perspective when it comes to oil and gas. Obviously, it would have been nice for Newfoundland and Labrador and the rest of the country to be salting away some of the proceeds of oil and gas historically, like they've done in Norway and Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we would be better equipped to deal with the transition. And I hope moving forward, the province will try to find some way to bank some of that money. It's hard when you have a big deficit, when you have lots of demand on the money. Uh, but when you're trying to make a, a major shift in your economic structure, from a dominant industry to try and foster other industries. It does take time, it does take effort, uh, and it does take investment. And and so hopefully, um, you know, if you and I are having this conversation in 30 years, uh, hopefully uh, Newfoundland and Labrador will have made that transition. Yeah. yeah, and for listeners who don't know, half of my heritage is based in this province. And so let, let me think, I mean, 28 years on this planet, I've probably made 23, 24 trips to the island. So I've seen its evolution as well. And the, the actually the year I was born is was the year of the Cod Moratorium. And my dad and my, my late grandfather still would talk about that. I mean, almost 25 years on, he passed a couple of years back, but, but they'd still talk very, very deeply about what that means to the province to this day. I mean, the, the, the natural resources sector is, 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 is not only important to the economy of Newfoundland, it's important to the people. It's a big part of the culture. Yeah, whether we're talking cod or Labrador hydro or now offshore oil and gas, there's not a lot of appetite among uh, Newfoundland and Labradorians for other people to come in and tell them how to run their business, right? You know, there, there was a, 
the deal on uh, on uh, Labrador uh, Hydro, you know, has been has been very much a cause of concern among among the population for decades. And then, of course, cod and now oil and gas. So when when others are coming in and telling Newfoundland and Labrador what they can and cannot do, you know, that that does rub people the wrong way. And so hopefully we can get to a solution that works and that we can have, again, as long as there's a demand for that oil. Once the demand goes away, all, all folks like me are saying is, look, Newfoundland and Labrador should compete for global uh, oil and gas investment. That's all. And if it comes a point where it's not competitive uh, to, 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 to produce oil in the offshore, um, then fine, we're going to have to make the adjustment. But right now to say, no, 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 we're just going to stop it and let everybody else uh, capture the, the demand for oil uh, doesn't make a lot of sense in my mind. Yeah, no, that's right. Let's do, um, let's do a quick mini tour of the Atlantic bubble because I've seen quite a bit of it over the last few weeks. Uh, two weeks ago, as everyone knows, because Herb Emery was in my seat, I was off getting married in St. Andrews. And I don't know, Dave, if you've spent any time in St. Andrews this summer, but what a big difference being that we don't have our brothers and sisters from the South coming up and enjoying the town. Big difference without the Americans. Yeah. And so my conversations with folks on Prince Edward Island, the same, right? It's just not the same. Now, as you and I've talked about, the reality is New Brunswick doesn't have a particularly large tourism industry compared to Newfoundland and Labrador and PEI. They actually have a trade surplus in tourism. And so New Brunswick has a trade deficit. So technically speaking, if New Brunswickers just spent their tourism dollars locally, we could actually have a good year for tourism where that's not mm-hmm. the case in PEI and Newfoundland and Labrador. But it is it's impactful. You see it. Uh, I've been uh, we've been doing trips every weekend uh, around New Brunswick. We've done a couple of trips to Nova Scotia. We're going to try to get to PEI. Um, you know, it is different. There's no doubt that the tourism is going to be way down this year. There's no doubt that there's uh, additional concerns around safety and, and, and all of the things related to COVID-19. So hopefully there'll be a salvage here. Uh, and then hopefully we can have a stronger tourism sector uh, next year. Yeah, absolutely. Second, um, you mentioned Nova Scotia. We then went to Halifax, which was our jump off point for Newfoundland. And I am continually blown away by the city of Halifax. There is, there is investment falling off of trees. I was in, uh, my brother is a chiropractor and he just moved to Halifax. So New Brunswick lost a chiropractor, but hopefully we'll gain one back to take his place. And he moved to West Bedford. And I was standing on his patio in his new building in West Bedford and looking 360 degrees, there had to be seven other developments that required cranes in my line of sight. And we're 20 minutes outside the downtown core. Unbelievable. Yeah, we'll have the folks on from the Halifax Partnership in a couple of weeks to, or a few weeks to talk about what's going on in Halifax. But they're, they've always been positioning themselves as the Maritimes only urban. Uh, so if you want to live in a big urban center, uh, but also have all the advantages of Atlantic Canada, you know, you should set up in Halifax. And that, that positioning has worked well in recent years. Halifax is really doing well. It led the country in population growth last year. Uh, and I'm excited to find out exactly what's going on down there. I see it in the numbers. It'll be great to talk to the folks uh, about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, uh, post-COVID-19, places like Halifax should be pretty positioned, pretty well positioned, right? Because you can, you can live in the periphery of the city, have a good job, 
uh, have a reasonable cost of living and have less concerns about the kind of uh, pandemic uh, urban concentration that you see in maybe some of the larger uh, urban centers across North America. We were down on the waterfront. Um, to this day, I think one of the most livable waterfronts I've ever come across. They did an unbelievable job. And I saw the offices for Develop Halifax. And I think I said this out loud to my now wife. I said, Develop Halifax, that must be the easiest job in the city. <laughs> there's, there's people lining up to develop Halifax. So I did a proposal this week uh, for the economic development plan for a little town in Ontario called Wasaga, Wasaga or Wasaga Beach. And it's actually the fastest growing uh, city or town in all of Canada. Hmm. So I said to my partner in Ontario, the strategy is going to be just keep doing what you're doing. And I think there's something to be said uh, in Halifax about that as well. Just keep doing what you're doing. You must be doing something right. So keep doing it. And hopefully uh, you'll continue to have success. Paradoxically, when you say that, it strikes me that the people who are paying for your report in their mind, they're probably not paying for just keep doing what you're doing. But if that's the answer, that's the answer. Yeah, but it'll, I'll, I'll have to put a, a lot of narrative around that. I do get paid per word. So we'll have a, you know, it'll be a 50 page report. But it'll basically <laughs> be, you know, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> my, uh, my uncle's a, a former healthcare CEO in Halifax. He actually just retired this year. And um, for whatever reason, being connected to a hospital seems to connect you to a lot of the major players in an urban center, uh, whether it's they contribute to a new wing of the hospital or they get involved in fundraisers or the board or whatever. And he was telling me also of the div- the the diversity of investment, excuse me, a lot of big Lebanese developers, hugely impressive Lebanese community in Halifax. In many ways, the diversity of the city, the investment attraction, it's just really become this 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 serious urban center that it didn't feel like it was in 2008, 2009. You go back in 2020 and you think I'm walking around in a legitimate city. So part, part of that is actually city planning, right? Because if you go back to that era that you're talking about, there was a lot of uh, pushback against high rise developments in in the downtown of Halifax hmm. and lots of controversy around a number of projects and that eventually worked itself out and that's why you see a lot of the cranes and a lot of the new residential and commercial uh, high-rise buildings that are being built or constructed in, in the downtown so I think it's uh, it's kind of interesting because I do believe that one of the reasons why Halifax was struggling a bit was this real pushback against um, actual uh, urban development right this is sort of concentration of population in the core building up instead of building out and there was a lot of pushback they got through that and now we're seeing that and, and it's a visible sign as you said like what, what you said earlier right you saw the cranes you feel it it's very visceral and i think that's you know people see that and that that's a sign of momentum and that encourages more people to invest, that encourages more entrepreneur, entrepreneurs to take the risks and start the businesses or grow the businesses. Mm-hmm. And so you get this positive effect. So in some ways, those cranes are more important than just uh, uh, signs of construction activity. 100%. And, and unfortunately, the problem is, and a lot of our listeners who are more technically minded won't like this aspect, but you can't measure that feeling of a place in numbers. I mean, I guess you could if you look at growth and and GDP and things like that. But I was at when the new convention center just had come 
into full action. I was at immigration meetings there and you may have been there. We probably didn't know each other at the time. I don't know if you were, but Mike Savage, the mayor spoke and he just seemed like he was having a ball and you don't get that everywhere. You know what I mean? It's, it's this thing you can't, you can't really put your finger on it, but this guy was just having a blast and Halifax was just, was just exploding. And it's a managing growth is always a good problem to have. I never, I don't know if I ever told you my theory about mayors, but I have, I want to hear after 25 years of this business, I have a theory that cities take on the persona of their mayor, Hmm. not right away, but after a certain period of time. So Fredericton really became Brad Woodside in terms of its attitude. Uh, You know, if you look at St. John, there's been some very strong willed mayors uh, going all, all the way back to Elsie Wayne and before. And really, I think what uh, and Moncton is a perfect example of that. When when uh, Brian Murphy was mayor here, the city had this sort of brash, you know, uh, arrogant kind of feel to it, which is very much Brian's personality. And when George LeBlanc was mayor, it was more sort of subdued, more quiet, more calm. And now under Don Arnold, it's more, you know, determined and serious. And let's get this city right or region right. Uh, and I think that's the same in Halifax with with Savage. I think he's setting the right tone uh, for the city, for development down there. Um, and I think he's had success. So I think that's the kind of thing you want to see from a mayor. It's It's a positive sort of upbeat attitude about your community without glossing over the problems. What I try to tell yes. mayors all along is you've got two audiences here. Well, you've got many audiences, but you basically got two. You know, the internal audience, you're, 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 you know, you needs to understand the challenges that you face and you need to work with them on that. But in general, you know, cities like St. John or Halifax or Charlottetown are beautiful places to live and invest. And, and, and so to try and spend all of the time on the dirty laundry, it seems to me is, uh, is counterproductive. So yes, we have to address the challenges. But never forget, these are this is a region that is poised for growth, that has great assets, that has great opportunity for growth, uh, and don't spend all of your time complaining about the few bad things we have in our region. Yeah, and but at the same time, like you were alluding to, you can't be delusional about the situation. And, and when you really find the truth coming at you is when you operate in the newcomer community. And I know I'm biased because I love that space. And I think it's the, I think it's the future of the region, but when you're in the newcomer space, especially with economic migrants, if you are being publicly delusional about the quality of life versus the opportunity, you're going to hear it directly to your face. The, the, what do you mean? I mean, is this, is this, is this really, you might not hear it from the locals because locals are always optimistic. Yes, we want to grow. We want to grow. But the newcomer community is very realistic about opportunity. And if there isn't a good value proposition or we're being delusional about the value proposition, they will leave. But that's my point about understanding your audiences. So in general, you do want to convey a sense of optimism and opportunity in your community. But when you're attracting immigrants, you need to be very clear about these are the job opportunities on the table right now. These are the economic opportunities on the table right now. Here's the cost of living environment you're going to face in our community. Here's the tax. So you have to be when when people are actually going to put the rubber to the road and come here. Yeah, you can't sell them the soap, right? You can't say, oh, just come here. The, you know, the opportunities are endless because that will cause uh, a lot of consternation when they arrive and they don't find the, the streets are paved with gold. And we've, we've seen that. My wife 
as I've said several times, is from Brazil, and we've seen some from mm -hmm. the Brazilian community also come to Canada and assume the streets are paved with gold, and they're not, right? If you're an immigrant coming uh, and you don't have, uh, there's no job that matches your skill set, you might have to take a more entry-level position. You might have to work your way up, um, which is the advantage, by the way, of the Atlantic Immigration Pilot, which I keep talking about, because yep. at least that program specifically is about matching you, the immigrant, with a job that matches your skill. And I know it's not perfect, uh, but that's the ideal solution, right? That if you're a tech worker or IT worker, you come to Canada, you're going to get a job in the tech field that matches your skills. That's the ideal. Because when you get a mismatch, and even on the entrepreneur side, and you and I have seen this, if I come up here as an immigrant entrepreneur, and I start a business uh, in a sector and then I blow through my savings and then, you know, I have to mm -hmm. close the business in two years uh, because, I, you know, I wasn't given the right information or maybe I didn't do my own market research. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that leaves a bitter taste in their mouth. So we do have to be more honest and straightforward with immigrants when they come about what they can expect here. You know, there's, the streets are not paved with gold, but compared to the rest of North America, this is a pretty good place to settle. And I still maintain that and I'll debate anybody on that. Yeah. But you have to realize it's a small market. These are small urban centers. If you're a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon uh, and you just show up here and expect there to be lots of jobs for rocket scientists and brain surgeons, you're going to be in trouble. Mm. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I was trying to think this through once and it was actually on a bus from Montreal to Ottawa and I thought you might find this interesting and I think it's probably worthy of some more digging and I started to think about this in relation to Halifax and I'll explain what I mean so I wrote this piece when I was on the bus from Montreal to Ottawa about the layers of a city because when you go into a big city there, there are almost always consistent layers first you hit the industrial belt where you see all the Kubota dealerships and all of that, that tends to be 30, 40 minutes outside of the city center. And then you get into the burbs where you all have all the families. And then eventually you come into a retail space like Bears Lake outside of Halifax or the east side of St. John for people listening. And then you're in the urban core. But there seems to be an evolution where that starts to reverse also because the young couples that were living in the high-rise downtown Halifax all of a sudden can't afford three grand for a two-bedroom a month, so they get pushed back out into places like West Bedford, where my brother lives, and West Bedford explodes. The only one that I can put my finger on that feels like that, in New Brunswick specifically, is driving into Moncton. Um, it hasn't happened yet. It, I mean, obviously, Moncton's not Halifax. I'm not, not telling anybody any news here, but it starts to feel like that a little bit in Moncton. But Halifax, I mean, they're in stage four. There are young couples 25 minutes outside the city building, buying, or renting in droves. There were, I think I only saw in my brother's community, every person I saw was between 25 and 40. Really amazing to see. And West Bedford is, congratulations to you, because it's exploding. Yeah, so it's a, it's the challenge, right, around housing costs versus commute times, and this is the age-old challenge, and, and Halifax is faces it more than other smaller cities in Atlantic Canada. But, you know, if, if you want to get reasonable housing, reasonably costed housing, if you want to have a, a larger plot, if you want to be near water, you know, you could be looking at a half an hour to 40-minute commute every day in Halifax. And I have lots of colleagues that do that, and that's fine. Their argument is, well, to get this in Toronto, my commute would be an hour. So there you go. So I think that's yeah. good. Uh, you know, Moncton and, and St. John and Fredericton are not 
facing that because they're not that size and they don't have the same challenges yet. But I mean, growth brings challenges. You know, anybody that lived in Moncton North 20 years ago, as I did when I first moved here, right? You could get downtown in five minutes. It was just an easy get on the road, come downtown. Uh, you know, now these people complain sometimes of 15 minute commutes during traffic <laughs> hour. You know, holy cow, I spent 15 minutes in my car this morning. Uh, now I moved right downtown, so I don't, I spend uh, 20 seconds on my commute. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we, everything is perspective for a Monctonian, a 15 minute commute is annoying. St. John has had a little bit more, um, because of the fact that many people live in the Valley and so on, that, that That's there's right. been a little more, there's been a little more acceptance of a longer commute, but even right, Hampton is only 30 minutes away from downtown, uh, uh St. John. Yeah. And every, even pretty decent growth in those kinds of communities as well. Okay. So I, I put together a bit of an order. We're going to hit the blog Dave. And uh, if I have your permission, I put together a bit of an order to walk through four of the posts that I thought would be pretty interesting to folks listening. And I wanted to stay with Nova Scotia because we did see Stephen McNeil step down. Is there anything that we should say that's not necessarily unique, but fruitful on, on Stephen stepping away? Um, I know I don't have anything to give the listeners, but if there's anything we should say about that before we get to the blog, let's do that now. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Stephen uh, McNeil, when he came into office, that basically corresponded to the to the time of the One Nova Scotia or the Now or Never initiative where Ray Ivany, the former president of Acadia University, uh, went around the province and asked people what they wanted for the future of their province in terms of the economy and growth. And it was a really great initiative. I had a chance to do some work on the initiative, I wrote one of the chapters in the final report. So coming out of that uh, now or never report were a number of initiatives meant to bring the province back to economic growth. And so I would say the the legacy of Stephen McNeil, and I say in the blog, I think I give him a, what did I give him, a B or a B minus? Maybe I forget what I ended up giving him. Because it, basically the economy did return to growth, whereas before it was pretty stagnant before he came in. Uh, the growth rate is not outrageous. It, it's uh, the average annual GDP growth uh, during his time was around 1.4% per year, but that was up from 0.4%. And in the last three years, it's been 1.8% per year, which is almost back to the historical average of 2 2.5% for Nova Scotia. So I, I think the basically I would conclude there's a couple of very important things that they did. One is they did increase immigration. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has been uh, a very important to them as well as the rest of Atlantic Canada. They did focus on a number of sectors uh, and industry growth opportunities, and that has uh, um, yielded fruit. They were, I think he was fiscally quite conservative. You know, spending did not go out of control uh, in Nova Scotia the, during the time in his office. And I, I, I list all of that in the blog uh, I wrote on him. So I would say at the end of the day, you know, that his legacy will be pretty strong. It's a little weird, as you said earlier, about him leaving right in the middle of, of a pandemic. But he's been there. I think he was there seven years, and he's, mm -hmm. he says he's tired. He's he's ready to make the change. But at the end of the day, this is a tough time to make a change uh, because we're going to need good leadership moving forward to get through this pandemic, to get through whatever comes next in terms of vaccines and, and the process of getting post actually post-COVID-19. But I would say, yeah, I gave him a B. Uh, and I would suggest moving forward, they need to double down 
uh, on an economic development and population growth agenda. And I would say, uh, similar to what we talked about earlier, it can't all be about Halifax. Uh, Nova Scotia is a big province. You know, Cape Breton's been doing very interesting things, attracting international students and, and other efforts. And so I think that as much as possible, and the Ray Ivany report pointed this out, is you need to look at the growth opportunities around Nova Scotia based on the strengths and opportunities in each each region of the province. But I would give him I would give him a B grade uh, for economic development. And on the blog, you have your your classic blue and orange graphs. One is the average annual real GDP growth, and the other that I liked was population growth. And I always have I always have an eye on PEI when we do these kinds of things because, as you say in the in the in the post, they're cooking with gas, as your father used to say. But is there is is this the right way to think about it? So the average annual real GDP growth of Nova Scotia under Stephen McNeil was one point eight percent, and over the same timeline, Prince Edward Islands was three point nine percent. Is that because Nova Scotia has less far to go? If you understand my meaning, PEI, if they if they turn it on and 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 cook with gas, they can achieve that three point nine percent. Nova Scotia and Halifax in particular are exploding, but the real GDP growth is less because they're already in relation to the size of PEI that much larger. Or is that incorrect? No, that's correct. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand is there is something percentage change is one thing. Absolute change in the number is another thing. And a very small jurisdiction uh, in terms of absolute growth needs less, right, than a very large jurisdiction just by definition. So you can get percentage. I guess the other way to look at it is if you go from one to two, that's a 100 percent increase. If you go from a million to a million and one, that's almost no increase at all, even though you added one both times. So that's absolutely right. It's harder by definition for larger jurisdictions to get the momentum of smaller jurisdictions um, uh, for that very reason, because of scale. And, you know, I've talked about this on numerous occasions, but certainly PEI did the right things early on. So you, you almost consider PEI as another uh, city, right? Because there's about 160, 150,000 or so right. on the island, which is about the size of the, you know, the greater uh, Moncton area. So basically, it's a city, and they put the pedal to the metal on immigration in 2010, and it was carnage. They lost about half of them, but they kept the other half, and that's why their population growth is leading the country. Yeah. Uh, they they pushed on a number of key industries: uh, aerospace, bios, biotechnology, agri-food. Uh, and then the secondary effects that come with that and all of the immigrant entrepreneurship buying out most of the business owners in Cavendish is one example. Uh, and, and all of that combined to get you this, this very strong economic growth that we're seeing uh, on the island right now. And hopefully COVID-19 won't derail that a lot. It'll certainly de- derail it in the short term, but hopefully they can get back to growth uh, next year as well. Yeah, and as you say, when you look at the second graph, population growth, 2014 to 2020, PEI's up there in the number one spot in front of Alberta with 10.2%, and Nova Scotia third from the bottom with 4.1%. But when you're on the ground in Nova Scotia, that 4.1% still looks awfully impressive. It looks awfully impressive because a lot of it's been concentrated in, in Halifax. Right. So Good that the, the growth rate in Halifax would be higher than 4.1, yes. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to your post from the 11th of August. Business is closing as a result of COVID-19, some first available data. 
and you put out some interesting information. It actually got a bit of commenting as well. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that first available data? So they call it experimental. I'm not sure why, but basically mm-hmm. what they're saying is they're looking at active businesses that go down to zero employees. So if you had one last year or last month and you went down to zero, that means you're a closure. Now, of course, you could next month, you could hire that person back or you could start the payroll up again. So it's not a permanent closure. It's not a bankruptcy, but it's one indication of trying to figure out what's going on with COVID-19. And so one of the learnings from that data, which I try to describe in here, is that in any given month uh, or year, for the province, you're losing several thousand businesses, right, through to closure. So mm-hmm. it's very natural. So the issue is you want to have for every one that closes, you want one, at least one opening. And in fact, you know, I show in the blog that the most successful communities or many of the successful communities for every hundred that close, you get 110 that open or 112 that open. And so you get this sort of actual growth in the size of the number of firms in your community. But what we have learned from the data is that we're, we're seeing a significant increase in business closures. This is only through April. Uh, so in, a, in the Moncton CMA in a typical month, there are about 117 business closures. And again, there's nothing wrong with business closures. Businesses close all sure. the time, right, for a lot of reasons. And we want them to close, close fast. And if they're so inclined, get right back into business with a new idea. But 117 business closures on a typical month. And in April 2020, there were 299 uh, in the Moncton CMA. So about 2.5 times as many closures. And that's mm-hmm. April. So we'll see. Uh, the data will come out for May, June, July as we move forward here. We'll see if there's more of a, a significant impact. But certainly in general, uh, some other jurisdictions saw three times the closure. Again, you have to be very careful on the Canadian comparisons because some of these businesses were in jurisdictions that were still locked down in April. Uh, and so some businesses might have literally turned it off and let everybody go and had no payroll. But when they when the economy opened up again in May or June, they might have brought them back. So I think there's there's something to do, uh, something in that. But I think the lessons from this early data is just a clear understanding that lots of businesses close, uh, lots of businesses open. And right now what we're seeing in COVID-19 is a dramatic shift where far mm-hmm. fewer opening and far more are closing. Uh, and we need to keep very uh, on top of that because if that continues, you know, that's going to be very bad for this region. So we'll be monitoring this data in great detail moving forward, but it is an indication of, of just how um, COVID-19 has impacted the business community. Yeah. And when I was reading it, it made me think about things that I thought would be short term are now looking to be long-term when you when you watch cable tv as i can't remember the last time i've done at home but but here staying with my grandparents in newfoundland watching cable tv every commercial and i'm not i'm not joking this might be 95 percent of the content on cable tv right now is a company who is putting out a commercial explaining how they've adapted to the pandemic whether it's delivery whether it's enhanced PPE to make their customers feel safe. It's all about safety. If, if you were to, if you had missed the last six months and you were just tuning in now, you would be remiss to think there was something like a war that had happened. Um, talking about safety, talking about cleanliness, talking about 
getting out there and being together again. It really, I think I wasn't, uh, I wasn't allowing myself to feel how difficult the pandemic had been on the community and maybe even myself. Um, but I'm starting to really get on the bandwagon that we got to come together here and figure out what does the next two years look like and how do we get back to normal because it's been hard on everybody. Yeah, I think that's right. It would be interesting if somebody fell asleep, you know, in, in last fall and woke up now. Um, you know, if they turned on the news, they'd be totally shocked at what are all these terms? What are these words? What do you mean a global pandemic? Did we have an mm -hmm. Ebola catastrophe? Exactly. So I think we, we've always, um, the, the threat of a pandemic has always been out there, right? SARS, MERS, H1N1, you know, uh, more far, far afield, things like Ebola. Um, so I think that person waking up, their first instinct might have been, oh, my goodness, right? That it's even actually worse than they thought, right? Yeah, that, what had happened? Was, right. So when they found out that actually nobody even died in New Brunswick as a result of COVID-19, they'd be like, well, really? A pandemic? What, what kind of pandemic doesn't kill anybody? Uh, so I think they need to get up to speed pretty quickly on on everything that's been done and so on. But it would be a, it would be quite a shock. Mm -hmm. And in Newfoundland, when you when you just operate in daily life, I've been wearing my mask because I've had some health issues in in 2020. But um, I don't believe there's been a mandatory mask legislation yet on the island. I think it may be coming. I was listening to NTV last night, and that may be coming. But people are being fairly cautious. There is some mask wearing. That's just a personal decision. Um, but when you look around because the cases are so low, I don't think there is a mandatory mask wearing legislation yet. And it certainly seems like there isn't because there's, uh, there's certainly folks who, who are still going about daily life, albeit just a bit more cautiously. Yeah. I mean, don't get me started on masks. I think we should yep. wear masks. I wear them yep. in the retail setting, anywhere you, where there can't be, a, you know, effective social distancing. I think we all should be wearing them. Uh, I understand, you know, lots of people don't want to wear them. They're annoying. They, you know, they think there's no COVID-19 around, which for most communities there, there isn't. But the only problem is, and we're seeing it in Alberta and BC right now with flare-ups, is that because of how this thing spreads, it could get a hold in a community mm -hmm. days before you even know it, right? So this is the idea of wearing masks. It's, prevent, it's, it's preemptive to say, look, it's a little weird. We're all wearing masks, even though there's no COVID-19, but it should keep it out. It should help to keep it out. And I do encourage people um, as much as possible to wear them, although I have no uh, street cred in that area. <laughs> yeah, it's just good solidarity. I, it makes me feel safe. It makes my, my neighbor feel safe. So it's just good solidarity. Um, August 18th. Dave, you wrote an interesting one that also had some pretty good traction, especially on LinkedIn in the business community. We know St. John is an exporter, but you subtitle that post with sometimes a kiss is just a kiss. Yeah, so I, uh, interestingly enough, Stats Canada has been publishing not that long. This is the first I've seen it. Uh, export data for the CMA. So that's the exporter value of exports from the CMAs based on the location of firms, right? So it's very important to realize that if you're uh, exporting pulp from St. John, the trees weren't cut down in St. John, but the firm doing the exporting is in St. John. So it's still provincial exports, but it's concentrated through a firm in St. John or Moncton or whatever. Uh, and when I ran that, those numbers ran them on a, ran them on a per capita basis across the country, St. Uh, John comes out second only 
to uh, Calgary for the value of exports on a per capita basis. These are international export product and service for 2018. And it was very impressive, right? I mean, you know, so, so obviously if you look at the breakdown by industry, it's almost all in manufacturing. And that specific data set doesn't break it down below the manufacturing level. But if you look at trade data online, it's pretty clear that the majority of that is, or, or maybe 85% of that is refined oil. And so what happened was when I posted this on LinkedIn and Twitter, there was a, f- a flurry of commentary, some of, mo- some of it, not all of it, some of it negative, saying, well, that's just oil, that's just a refinery. Uh, and then a whole string of comments about uh, beyond that. And so my response is pretty simple, and I put it on the blog here, is that, look, sometimes a kiss is just a kiss. As Sam sings in Casablanca, a smile mm-hmm. is just a smile, and I won't break out into song here today if i did maybe we'd all of our listeners would turn off (laughs) but you know sometimes just take a good stat and enjoy it don't feel like you have to break it down and say well we're totally exposed to oil we're totally exposed to that industry you know the company doesn't pay any taxes whatever the all the crap that came out in the blog and or excuse me on the on social media Mm -hmm. so just accept the fact that this is a really Good story for St. John's. Second highest per capita exports in the country among metro areas. I mean, you could pick Calgary apart. Almost all of Calgary's international exports are related to the oil sector. Okay. So that's an issue, right? So certainly if we look 20 or 30 years out, as we talked about earlier, 40 years out, Calgary and St. John will have to think about that, right? Calgary even more so than St. John. But at the end of the day, my point is, look, just enjoy it. Self-flagellation, you know, it, 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 it's eventually you just get tired of it. You keep whipping yourself and then you're like, why do I keep whipping myself, right? It's not having mm-hmm. additional marginal benefits. And I think that's sometimes, particularly in St. John, but also across the province, we love to look at something that's good and pick it apart and pick out every little possible negativity. And, and, and then we, we kind of dilute it. So in this case, just enjoy the fact that St. John is one of the top, top exporters Moncton and uh, exports very little internationally, relatively speaking. There was an interesting stat in there for Moncton, though. It's about almost $100 million worth of international head office exports for Moncton. So another mm-hmm. interesting story about activity going on in Moncton that's serving international markets. The economic benefit is occurring in Moncton. $100 million is not an insignificant amount. It's, it's uh, I think Halifax was $8 million. So imagine Moncton is getting 10 times the international export revenue is Halifax Hmm. when it comes to head offices. So you have to be careful. I I talk about this a lot. When you're talking about this kind of data, you have to think about interprovincial exports, right? So most of Moncton's exports are across Canada, whereas most of St. John's exports are international. Uh, But on the international front, you know, St. John is killing it right now. And yes, it's wood products. Yes, it's oil. Yes, it's recycled material yes it's fish right sure it is it's all of those things but let's just Mm -hmm. celebrate it and enjoy the fact that you know our port city is one of the top exporting jurisdictions in uh, canada it it's always it's always occurred to me that it's going to be a fascinating transition whenever it happens if it happens like you say those don't sound like 21st century industries but nonetheless number two in the country that's if you polled um the local population to say we know saint john is an exporter how do you think it ranks per capita in the country 
why would we fail that? We would never say two. I guarantee you we wouldn't say two. Why do we fail that? I mean, maybe it is because we don't feel and look like a 21st century city, but nonetheless, these things are important right now. They still are. Um, people are still buying them. We're still having success. I wonder why we fail that test. I think we fail it because we look out 30 years like, and say, well, there's no long-term future for oil refining. But there's a long-term future for ambitious entrepreneurs. And the owner of that oil refinery hopefully will be continuing to invest you know, generationally in the St. John area in new industries. Mm-hmm. Right, So let's have a little bit of optimism for the port city. There's lots of opportunity. We've talked about this on the show before. Uh, it's interesting. Um, Donald Savoie just came out in the last couple of weeks with his new biography of Irving Oil. I saw uh, that at Indigo. Yeah, and so I picked up a copy. I've started it. I'm about a third of the way through. It's classic Savoie. He, you know, he's unapologetically pro-business, unapologetically. He, he states very clearly up front that he's actually friends with Arthur Irving and his wife. Uh, you know, so there's no sort of hidden um, agenda with this. It's a straightforward look at the growth of uh, Irving Oil and the success of Irv- Irving Oil, starting with that one gas station in Bucktouche. But it's an entrepreneurial story, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm looking forward to finishing it. And I think you and I should have Savoie on the podcast soon to talk about it. Oh, he we'd love a, to. We'd love to. He wrote a magisterial uh, biography, I think, of uh, Harrison McCain. And, and why I like it so much is that it, it told the story of economic development in that part of the country. It told the story of the potato research that was done to make sure you could grow a potato that would have the characteristics that you could freeze it and ship it and store it in a way that you couldn't before that research was done. So there's, there's, there's a whole uh, narrative way beyond the individual entrepreneur. And I think, uh, you know, I'm already starting to see that with the, uh, with the Irving Oil book here. But that's the beauty of these good biographies. They tell a broader story of the time, of the industry, of the other major actors. And so the primary player, Arthur Irving in this case, becomes a small part of the narrative because what you walk away with is, is a broader understanding of how the whole thing came together, all of the different influences, the role of government, the role of, uh, of the local community, and so on. So I, I'm excited to finish this one. I encourage people to pick up the Harrison McCain uh, book, and I encourage them to, to, to look at this one as well, although we should have Savoy on uh, to talk about it. But the reason I raise it is because, again, it's the largest exporter by far for St. John. You know, and and without that huge driver of economic activity, what else, right? So some people in St. John that are anti-Irving might say, well, we would have had all these other industries grow up. Somebody else might say, no, you would have become Parsboro, right? Which is another port city uh, in the Maritimes, on the Bay of Fundy. Why did St. John grow the way it did, right? Well, I'm not a historian, you know, there's lots of, we could talk about that. We could have somebody on to talk about that. But at the end of the day, I don't like this sort of, uh, you know, revisionist history where we go back and say, well, you know, things could have happened in a lot different way if this or that did not happen. People say it about Confederation. If we didn't join Confederation, some people say we were, we'd be a lot stronger. Some people would say we'd be a lot weaker. You know, people look at all kinds of pivot points in our history 
whether it's the national rail system or the reorientation of trade east-west versus north-south. I don't, I, there's some instructive value to that, but my view is we are where we are right now. Let's celebrate the good in St. John, the good in Moncton, the good in Halifax. And if we have industries that don't have a long-term outlook, let's have conversations with the related entrepreneurs and let's think about what that transition could be Mm-hmm. Uh, and how we could support as they move into new, you know, they're going to they're gonna be investing capital. They're going to be investing capital for generations. We want to make sure they're investing the next generation of capital here in New Brunswick. Yeah, one person who, who I really want to have on the show in the coming months is almost the perfect person to speak to the energy climate right now because he's a former, he's one of my mentors in the energy sector. He's a former Irving Oil executive who has since retired and is now the principal of GSB Energy, um, which helps governments and municipalities and companies think about how to transition, um, to go from high carbon input to low carbon input um, while still maintaining your energy efficiency and productivity. So he's a former Irving Oil executive who obviously understood the space and was in the space for a reason, who has now, since in his retirement, planned projects with with, uh, governments as far as Ontario, to think about that future. So we have to get him on fantastic guy to speak to this thing. And then Savoie, that sounds like a two-parter to me because both of these stories, like you say, the revisionist history thing, we can think about it all we want, but these are two fundamental New Brunswick stories. Um, so it'd be absolutely excellent to talk to him, not only about the history, which he knows and writes well, but about what comes next. Absolutely. Okay, last one. We got a very special second part to this episode, so we got to get through the blog. This was by far the most traction of the four that I had chosen, um, and I know you have some thoughts on on the comments and the uh, and the post itself. And the title again is 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 fantastic. It's Hey Rip Van Winkle. If you're still stuck in 1970s New Brunswick, here are a few facts for you to consider. Do you want to talk about this post and why it? Got the traction it did? So a usual post for me, the one that gets some traction, so I'll, I'll post stuff that only gets a few hundred views, but a typical one might get 1,000, 1,500 views, maybe 2,000 views. This one is at 8,000 counting between the Twitter links and the, and the LinkedIn links. So it got a lot, and obviously, I don't know a whole lot about social media, but a lot of it was because of all the retweeting and all the commenting, it started showing up higher in people's feeds but basically what annoyed me and occasionally i get annoyed as a when i was a younger man i used to stand on the soapbox a lot more i used to yell and scream a lot more but in my old age and my dotage here i'm a little less that way but when i read this this story um uh about this young lady in saint john who's been stirring up trouble about the police and i don't i don't know her story so i don't want to talk about her story but somebody posted on her her Twitter feed that, you know, New Brunswick is worse, it's old, it's never going to change. You know, it's a whole bunch of things about how terrible New Brunswick is. And you can tell this was an old person, you know, in my 40 years, it's never gotten better and so on and so on. So I went in and I said, well, wait a minute, let's look at the data. Let's be objective about it. Let's look at now to, compared to 40 years ago. And so what I did is I just basically picked apart all of the big stats so New Brunswick, the, the poverty level, the income level, the unemployment level, da, 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 da. And in fact, we have dramatically improved on almost every 
economic and social indicator uh, if you compare now to the 70s. Um, so across the board, we are much better off. Does that Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Is there lots of stuff we need to work on? Absolutely. But the point of that, that specific blog was to say, look, if you're still stuck in the 70s, if you still think New Brunswick is a place that no immigrants move to, if you still think New Brunswick is a place uh, where incomes are low, if you look at the average, the median uh, couple income, so that's folks uh, between the ages of, uh, uh, what are we looking at, 25 to 34, they earn almost as much as their their counterparts in Toronto. There's only a 4% spread, and that's not accounting for the cost of living. So if you're a young couple, you know, in your late 20s, early 30s in St. John or wherever, Moncton, Fredericton, and you're earning just the median income for your cohort of couple, you're earning, you're earning almost exactly the same as your counterpart in Toronto. And that's statistical data from Stats Canada. So, you, you know, so if you know somebody that's making a mint in Toronto on Bay Street, good for you. But the median family couple between the ages of 25 and 34 in Toronto is actually only earning slightly more, 4% more than that same couple in St. John, New Brunswick. So we need to put everything in perspective. This is not the 70s. We're not. We have more kilometers of four-lane highway per capita in this province than any other province in the country. We have more hospitals. Now, of course, there's lots of controversy about that, but more hospitals per capita. And we have, you know, again, the economy on many fronts is much better now than it was back then. So I wrote that. I would say of the 8,000 people that uh, viewed this, of the hundreds of people that liked it uh, or commented on it, uh, I would say that the vast majority of them agree with me. So, you know, there's still some old curmudgeons around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I'd love to chat with these old curmudgeons because we have to counter this narrative, you know, that we're stuck in this sort of poor woe is me, things are never going to change New Brunswick. We are not. We are in a province that has lots of opportunity, that has attracting record levels of immigrants, uh, that has lots of uh, bright lights among the you know young entrepreneurs. Obviously, we need more. We're talking about that on this podcast weekly. But there's lots of bright young entrepreneurs, actually like yourself, Matt, starting businesses, taking risks. So let's look at that. Let's deal with the tough information and the tough data and let's tackle the challenges head on but let's not think we're stuck in the 1970s we've we've reduced the gdp gap with the rest of the country over that time the gdp per capita gap the income gap has almost disappeared uh unemployment rates are dramatically lower poverty rates are dramatically lower Mm -hmm. yeah no i totally agree i think for you and i've always thought this about the blog and for anyone who wants to engage with what we talk about on the blog it's david w campbell Dot com and I've always thought that the quality of your reader is really impressive. So so whether the quantity is there or not, you always seem to garner some longer responses. And that's very different than just a like. So shout out to Lawrence Corbett, Corbett sorry Lawrence, Bill O'Donnell, Anne Marie Arsenault, Tim Andrew, and all the other people who engaged through social media and keep doing that. Um, we'll we'll bring up some of the the most impactful comments and talk about them here on the podcast and entrepreneurship, I think is going to be a fascinating discussion to keep going on as we come through the pandemic. We'd love to have some of our entrepreneurs and residents come back on this show and talk about it because for many, this was a time to batten down the hatches. And if you needed to do that, rightfully so, this is a trying time, but for others, it was, wow, look at what companies are thinking about now and here are the services that we can offer. So 
yeah, there's there's some there's some bright light coming. Um, we have a really interesting part two to this podcast, so let's hop off for now, and we'll bring you Elena Lockhart and Lisa Rablick, the hosts of Happy to Be Here, another new podcast also on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network. Thanks, Dave. Super. David, we're back for part two, and we have some very special guests as the punctuation mark of this episode. We do, and these are two of my favorite New Brunswickers. Of course, Elena Lockhart will always be known for her work on immigration. So the, 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 the committee that she uh, initiated in Ottawa was transformational, I think. If you look at the immigration numbers, they started to increase significantly after that. Retention, it looks like, is much higher than it was before uh, uh, earlier a decade ago. So I think that will be a real mark on her resume moving forward. Lisa Rablick, of course, has been stirring up trouble for 20 years or more uh, <laughs> on a lot of fronts. Uh, really an excellent mind, a, a true intellect, and has collaborated a lot with John McLaughlin, a former president of UNB, and really, really excited to hear what they're up to with their with their podcast. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Yeah. yeah, that's right, Lisa. That's right. Every time I every time I go to specifically an immigration event, but any event at all, and I look up on the stage and I happen to see Lisa taking the moderator's chair, I kind of rub my hands together knowing we're in for something good. <laughs> so for our listeners who don't know, um, Lisa and Elena are actually the most recent hosts to join the Unsettled Media Podcast Network. They host a podcast that is released weekly on Thursdays called Happy to Be Here. And ladies, I'd love to hear it in your own words. What was the impetus for doing the show? Why now? And, and why is it resonating with people? Well, you go ahead, Lisa. This is... Uh... <laughs> I'm going to throw to you. Oh, okay. All right. Um, well, Matt, part of it was you because you came up to me and uh, said, Lisa, you should do a podcast. Um and uh, so I gave that some thought and I'll quickly add that if you hear any strange noises coming out of my office uh, through the microphone, my dear dog has just joined us. He's uh, <laughs> so definitely home office recording. Um, but Elena and I had um, been doing a um, video series on Facebook, sort of lunch and learns um, and really enjoying the conversation. And those were about New Brunswickers. But we wanted to kind of take that conversation outside of New Brunswick and start to bring in voices from across the country. Because when I think about deep change and that work that I've been doing with John McLaughlin, um, what Elena was doing up in Ottawa and continues to want to do, and quite frankly, what the two of you are trying to do, one of the things we need to do is we've all been working in isolation, all of us who are working towards change, and we've been using our own processes and we've been working within different sectors. And we have to start to acknowledge that this change, which is very different than changes in the past, we need to begin to identify all of these people working across all of these different sectors and in different ways mm -hmm. to show actually the immensity of the work already being done. Because when you two are talking about growing pains and you're talking about the numbers, a lot of what we end up talking about is that traditional ways of doing business get stuck at some point, right? Mm -hmm. um, because they don't know how to move forward. But there are a lot of people out there in New Brunswick and around Canada who are on the ground doing this work um, on their own 
or in small groups. And we need to unite them all so that the powers that be can see there actually already is a movement afoot and they will be supported if they mm-hmm. make some of these leaps that we need to make. So that's I actually how- thought about, yeah, I thought about you ladies last night and this silo conversation is a good one. I was in a board meeting last night and someone who is, who is um, within the government, a GNB employee, had said that they did a meta-analysis of people working on creating databases for New Brunswickers, whether it's health or, or job count or whatever. And they said at, at one time, I think it was early last year, they had counted nine government-funded initiatives to be creating databases in the same sector. Right. So how do we silo to that extent but have, but have consistency in understanding where we're headed or what the reality right. of the situation on the ground is? Right. And, you know, and Elena can speak to this, but of course, what we're seeing a lot with policy is policy changes in one space and it impacts another space, but those two policy spaces don't talk to each other. So a really simple example is municipalities will cut their snow clearing budgets because, you know, they're 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 hard up for cash. right? So they cut the snow clearing budget, but we don't look at the the comparison of when those budgets went down and what emergency room visits, what happened to emergency room visits around hip and knee injuries in the winter, right? So those are two different levels of government, let alone two different um, departments of government that actually end up impacting each other. Yeah, no, for sure. And David and I, we talk a lot, for example, about growth and I kind of see our throughways as being growth, but talking about it in different ways. So we've talked about how do you measure it? We had some folks on the Turning Point podcast, Dave, that said GDP isn't a great measure of growth, but nonetheless, you you must look at that number just to understand where you're technically headed. But are there other ways we measure growth in this region? It seems like we're probably going to have to explore alternative ways of looking at what growth means in the Atlantic region. I think so. I think, um, and as Lisa knows, I often defer to the difference between urban and rural, for example. And, you know, what motivates people to live in rural areas and how are they measuring the success of those communities? And I don't think it's it's totally based on GDP. However, GDP is an important measurement. And mm. to me, it's, and Lisa and I talk about this all the time, it's that and, and, right? So we know that GDP is an important, significant number and a trusted measure. What else do we need to layer on that um, to really understand how those communities are growing and what people in the communities want them to grow like, you know? And um, yeah, I think, I, I just think that's an, fascinating conversation that keeps bubbling up as uh, we talk to people across the country that are working on everything from measuring different things to creating new things. We can shoot Dave out of a cannon with that one. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I I really love the fact, Elena, that you and and Lisa are working on sort of grassroots or bottom-up approaches. I I think that has been one of our historical challenges is that we think Ottawa is going to come in and save us or Fredericton is going to come in and save us. And that's a that's a challenge with any small jurisdiction. But I do think that the real solutions, the, the entrepreneurship, the problem solving does happen in communities. And that does include, you know, lobbying government for, you know, save my hospital, that type of stuff. That's part of that. 
Uh, and I agree with you 100% on GDP. I just think that what people need to understand is that a, a community that is shrinking, its economy is shrinking, will face a series of challenges that are difficult, right? Around service cuts, around all these other things, whereas communities that are growing also face challenges, but they're a different set of challenges. So all I've said all along is that GDP is just that sort of one master measure of that, but it's certainly not the only measure. And it's not actually a particularly good measure, but we need to be, we need to be able to track that we're growing. So what I would like to see is very strong and durable communities all across New Brunswick uh, that are sustainable, right? Because I, I'm not sure that retirement communities are sustainable. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. When I look at Elliott Lake uh, in, in Ontario, for example. Um, so, but at the end of the day, I think, I think it's really great what you're doing. And, and again, um, we applaud that and we see a great crossover between this podcast and yours. Yeah, personally, I think all the work needs to be done, right? And, um, and to your point, I mean, I guess the, the fear... I guess by focusing on GDP as a community, I don't think that a community can can grow by focusing, you know, if I take the village of Riverside Albert, Albert, for example, you know, they can't focus on GDP as as how they're going to grow. They've got to talk about all the things that are going to attract and retain people in business. So you're right. It's back to those entrepreneurial ideas. It's back to looking at the assets that they have in the community and how they leverage them. And what Lisa and I in our podcast have also found is so many people are talking about that pride in place. So actually understanding the identity of a community and building on that instead of competing with other communities. And um, I'm coming at you today from Newfoundland, and I think... Newfoundland has really done a great job at that. I mean, if you travel around this this province, each of these little communities, whether it starts with their their unique names and goes from there, but they really have that sense of pride in where they're from and what they're about. And, um, you know, that not to say they haven't had their struggles, but I think it positions them well as we go forward. And there's some great work going on here in Newfoundland. I just don't want these small communities to give up. Me neither. I right. Think. And that's why I think what you're talking about makes so much sense, because I worry that some of them I've talked to some mayors that have just said, well, look, you know, forget it. Demographics are demographics. Economies are economies. We can't do anything about it. We'll just let's just hold on for dear life here. And I don't think that's a particularly great vision. I, I much prefer a vision which says, OK, what's the next round of entrepreneurship? What's the next round of opportunity in our community? How can we build that pride of place? that you folks are talking about and you see it in Newfoundland and Labrador, you see it in Cape Breton, you see it to maybe a little lesser extent of PEI and you certainly see it in Acadian communities in New Brunswick, but we need that in Sussex. We need that in Sussex corner. We need that in Hampton. And by the way, I was in Hampton last week and there's some funky stuff going on down there with Creedles market and coffee shops. And so I think, I think there are some interesting things happening uh, at the community level all over the province. And I, and I think we also have to give um, people who live in communities some credit for understanding the nuance of what is happening. So, and and that is why policy has to come from the ground up. And um, so when we talk about, for instance, hospital closures or emergency room closures, which of course was happening in Sussex where Elena lives, that's a great example of People understand the realities of money and they understand the realities of population. However, 
you need to involve them in that conversation. So you don't just come down from on high and say, whoopsie, you know what, we're out of cash. So eh, here on the losing end of this conversation, you need to go in there and put in the work and have the conversation and design something that serves the needs of that community while also serving that bottom, the needs of the bottom line, right? And this is where um, larger government, institutional and corporate players are failing is they fear the conversation because they're seeing protests, they're seeing pushback and they fear that. And they actually have to, you know, put on their big boy and big girl pants <laughs> and settle in for a conversation, an honest conversation that might take a few months, but then might actually get them to a solution rather than what we saw happen in New Brunswick last year, where mm -hmm. they did a big oopsie and now we're no further along. I think population growth is a really focal point of that conversation. It has also been all across Europe as well. I'll give you an example and I'll, I'll try to keep this story short, but I think it it tells the story pretty well. And to me, it was it was simply an, an urban rural issue. I talked to a family member of mine who's this really talented guy who works with his hands and he lives in a small town and he's he's done manual labor his entire life. Really talented guy. And at the same time as the what was called the Syrian response was happening, his company had lost a big highway contract, I believe. And a lot of guys in the area had thought that there had been money taken from the infrastructure budget and just given, tacked onto the immigration budget. And it's the urbanites growing without the concern of the rural um, towns. And I sat down and had a, had, a, had a talk with him, and he's a really thoughtful guy. And he said, they may be wrong about that. The infrastructure and the immigration budget aren't the same. But here's the problem. Nobody comes and talks to us about this ever we're not on the campaign trail. We're not told what this demographic change is going to look like. All we're told is if we don't go along with it, we're backward. We don't get it. We don't understand the future. This is how it works. And to me, when he said that, it was really kind of thoughtful of him to say that because what I think it shows is that there is this mentality that that, that kind of a of movement is simply the urban centers growing without consideration or thought for the rural towns. And of course, the like I said, the infrastructure budget isn't the immigration budget, but at the same time, if those guys believe that, isn't it all the same? I mean, that's mm -hmm. still going to be the mentality in the area. It was pretty thoughtful of him. Um, you know, I, uh, I listen, the name of this is Growing Pains, and I think what's, <laughs> what's interesting is that some of the problems that we're challenged with now um, are because of growth. So for example, I'm the uh, chair of the Multicultural Association in Sussex, and we're having conversations about what are the barriers for retention in Sussex. And they center around housing, childcare, um, licensed childcare, because you're not gonna leave, if you're a newcomer, you're not going to send your kids to Susie down the street that takes all the kids, right? Because you don't know them. So licensed daycare spots. Um, and then having employers start to think about um, hiring newcomers and what that looks like. But the housing and the daycare challenges are not challenges just for newcomers. And it's not about building spots just for newcomers or building housing for newcomers. It's about the fact that the community has an opportunity to grow 
And whether it's for newcomers or whether it's for people that want to stay in the community or come back to the community, um, those are, are, are challenges that are related to growth, which is a new challenge for a lot of rural communities. Um, and uh, to your point about that urban-rural kind of not having any regard for each other, I think we need to be talking more about the interdependency between our rural and, and urban communities. And what better time than during a pandemic when we've all appreciated the opportunity to get out into those rural spaces and uh, and see what's out there and understand where our food comes from, where our clean water comes from, all of those things. So it's not so matter so much a matter of you know urban communities subsidizing rural, but can rural communities define what their value is and come to the table to talk to those urban communities so that it can be a more holistic conversation about how to move forward, which I know, you know, the province is, is interested in having those conversations, but we keep hitting those roadblocks. And I think it's going to come back down to, you know, can the communities define their value? And I know, David, you and I have meant to dedicate a whole episode uh, to the urban rural nature of New Brunswick and its uniqueness. Yeah. I mean, I, sort of saw this when I was working in St. John recently on that regional economic development play. The city was saying, you know, we, you benefit from us. The jobs are all here. The entertainment infrastructure is all here. All the services are here. So what are you complaining about? And they were all saying, yeah, but without our labor force, without our markets, without our population, you, you'd have much less activity. So that interdependency was clear and even with the lsds right the lsds provide a lot of labor because there's very few jobs in the lsds they're all commuting into the city and towns and so that interdependency i think elaine is right we need to have that conversation sussex then, of course is different because it's becoming its own little urban hub uh it becomes the urban hub for sort of greater sussex yeah the um and those are all the traditional values of, of what those relationships in those areas. But what about, like I said, clean water, food sources, clean air, recreational opportunities? Like, I think those communities need to, to have some way to measure those, too, um, and bring that to the table. And New Brunswickers need to have this conversation because we are all the rural area of Canada. So if we... Right now, Canada is becoming a country of five cities and the hinterland. That is the national story. It is Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver, and sometimes Halifax when they feel like including it. And the rest of us are becoming lost in that national conversation. So if we are going to change the trajectory of that national conversation and ensure that New Brunswick as a whole has a, has a viable and prosperous future within a 21st century Canada, then we damn well better figure out how we make St. John and Sussex and Moncton and Carraquette and Fredericton and um, Heartland work together because Toronto doesn't need us. It doesn't think it needs us. Montreal doesn't think it needs us. And we got to figure that out. So we're in that movie 28 days later. That's what That's I would right. say, right? So Toronto is behind the wall with all the That's people right. dying of pandemics we, and you get to move to Heartland. That's right. Beautiful. We are not in the great big shining city in Hunger Games. We are yeah. 
drawn the numbers. Yeah, we're District 12. We're, we're District, District 12. 12. <laughs> you cannot forget about District 12. Ladies, I'm going to add District us... 12 and happy to be here. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We're... Ladies, the four of us could talk about these things all day long. And uh, and we, we all know that's a fact. But maybe we could end with with each of the two of you, Elena and Lisa, maybe just, just reminiscing on one of the really cool conversations you've had on the podcast. And like I said, uh, this drops every Thursday and we have another episode coming to you today as well. So maybe ladies, and that's episode six. So maybe ladies, you could reflect on the first five episodes and maybe just tell a quick story about one conversation that's been particularly meaningful. Elena, you go first. <laughs> well, you know, I was actually, as you were asking the question, being a, I think once it's ingrained in you as a politician, I, I was like, oh, I'm not going to actually answer that question. But <laughs> 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 because what I actually find interesting about the podcast that we've been doing is that we've been creating a story arc as we went. Right. So Lisa and I went into this saying we're not the experts here. We want to learn. We think there's something here. And let's talk to to a whole bunch of people we we try to set a topic for each conversation but we've been really surprised at the end of each podcast that regardless of which two people we bring to the table there's a common theme and then as mm. we keep talking there's a common theme from episode to episode um so one of the the interesting things to me um and it, it actually was i will answer your question it actually was mary doyle that i talked to that uh, has a, a business called rural on purpose and she's in ontario but she really focuses on that entrepreneurial spirit in rural communities and that that is key. And that is actually something that Zita Cobb talks about, too. I, she, she recently said, uh, not on our podcast, but another one I was listening to that, you know what, if you can figure out the economy, people figure out who's coming to play cards on Saturday night by themselves. We don't need to sort that out for them. Right. <laughs> so um, that entrepreneurial spirit is so key. And I've been trying to articulate what it is about communities that are thriving and communities, like you say, David, that, that seem to be throwing in the towel. And a lot of it boils down to that. So uh, to me, that was a really interesting conversation to have with Mary. Uh, yeah, so I would agree. I, I love the discovery. Um, so I actually get most excited when we're trying to figure out who to bring on um, for the next week. I love figuring that combination. So um, I really did enjoy this most recent conversation with our two B Corps with Hari and with Allison um, because they really, um, they've taken um, purpose-led and community-driven to heart and have made it their operational manual. Mm. Um, for both eco advisors out of Halifax and Paintbox out of Toronto. And I um I loved how they both can break down how you do that because I think that's a very common question people in their heart of hearts want to act. Um but don't know how. Hari gave us this great example. He um one of his first jobs was with, was with some large environmental um nonprofit in New York and a member of the Walton family who own Walmart uh, sat on it. And he was like, he asked this guy, why are you on this nonprofit for environmentalism when you own Walmart, not mm. known for 
being great on those on that front. And and he said, well, it, it was a very classic philanthrop- philanthropic answer. It was, well, now when I look, I want to make a change, and I look at my grandchildren, and I want to ensure that the, that they have the reason that the resources are still there. And I look at how much Walmart buys every year, and I am concerned that we are going to run out of resources based on just our own buying pattern and how much con- how much we purchase to consume. Um, so. I love that story because it points to, we can't assume people based on what they do or who they are aren't thinking about this and that they themselves are searching. And I take great hope from that. And how do we help bring more people across the line? Yeah. Amen. That's great. It reminded me of when you, when you talk about one story leading to the other and the story arc evolving as you go. When Dave and I were talking to Durendra Shukla and Jeff White in the entrepreneurship episode of Turning Point, I was kind of furiously scribbling because they both have some really good things to say. And and Durendra very plainly, without even really continuing on after he said it, said, well, if you're going to increase entrepreneurship, you have to lower the student debt burden because your appetite for risk becomes so much lower when you onboard that kind of debt. And that kind of just blew my hair back. And I thought to myself, wow, okay, we have to unpack that now. So entrepreneurship leads to student debt, leads to all of these things. So I really applaud you both for for telling those stories. Happy to be here drops every Thursday. So GP listeners, please go over there and show some love to Elena and Lisa. Dave, sign us off, my friend. That's been a great conversation. And uh, I will promote your podcast uh on my social media as well and look forward to listening to it continuing to listen to it uh and hopefully we can get the audience up and uh they can benefit from it as well thanks ladies thanks guys take care everyone that was fun the growing pains podcast is produced by the great zachary peltier and is part of the unsettled media podcast network